This week on the In-Depth Podcast, legendary Hollywood producer Brian Grazer. Someone says no to me, it's just a temporary point of view. After co-founding the production company Imagine Entertainment with longtime collaborator and friend Ron Howard, the duo's films would go on to gross over $15 billion. When I sat down with him in 2020, Grazer discussed the inspiration for the film that won him an Academy Award. And, uh, just a second. Sure. Tactics for dealing with the industry's biggest stars. And then Monday, Jim Carrey says, I'm in, I'll do it. And meetings with Princess Diana and Elon Musk. That'd be like you getting me on the show. All that and more from the Oscar winner's 12,000 square foot Los Angeles home, right here on the In-Depth Podcast. I actually wanted to start by uh, asking you about this specific story because we reconnected after my episode taping with Tom Hanks, yes. uh, where Kelly Slater taped a question for him that involved you. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like your version of that story. Okay, so my version of that story was, um, first, Tom and I had beach houses that were 100 feet apart, two in Malibu Colony. And in the middle was a, a one other house, you know, that, that made it 100 feet. <laughs> And we were just like really, really super good buddies. And we'd sit out on the beach, we'd do a bunch of stuff together, but we didn't surf. And we'd watch these young kids look pretty tough surfing, you know, kind of badass, like getting waves. Cause there was a surf break in front of both of our houses called Old Joe's. Um, and one day, and we kind of shared birthdays, Tom and I, um, we're three days apart. So he decided for our birthday, he was going to buy us surfboards and get a surf instructor uh, to teach us to surf, which is a big surprise. And I thought, great, this, well, let's try it. And we got the surf instructor. We learned at Malibu Beach, which is just on the other side of the colony. And we started to, you know, we learned how to surf. And then we started doing it and we started loving it. And we loved it so much that we made a pact that even if we're working, unless he's acting on screen, if we're working, we'll stop working. We will, I will t cancel meetings, he'll cancel meetings, and we'll go surfing. So it was one of those days where there were good waves at a place called um, Little Doom. Doom Beach, Little Doom. Um, and the waves were big and it wasn't crowded. And I got on a wave, I have a short board and he had a larger board, a longer board. And I see Tom Hanks like in the impact zone while I'm taking off on this wave. And I'm thinking I could get around him, but I'm also thinking, it's, it, he's a movie star, he's the movie star. Am I gonna kill the movie star? And apparently I did, because I rode over <laughs> him and I conveniently forgot that it caused him to get, I think, 35, 36 stitches in his calf. And uh, I learned that on your show, it was 36. Oh, do you remember what happened? Like, I after remember you, what happened, yeah. So, I, I mean, but you make impact and then... Well, I'm on the wave. I'm going down the face right. of the wave and just really getting, you know, get, you know, gathering my stability to maneuver around the movie star but uh, miscalculated right. and hit the movie star. And you had to take him to the hospital? <laughs> I, I literally, I block out bad stuff. So I, I, I'm not sure I took him. 
But I know he went. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. So I want to take you back to uh, when you were a young man, just starting out in uh, th this career. You're, I think, 23 years old at the time. Uh, tell about the job you had and how you were able to wrangle your way to <laughs> consistently get in front of luminaries and some of the notables you got in front of. So, okay, so the job you're referring to is uh, I became a law clerk at Warner Brothers. But basically what happened is I graduated college, a good, very good college that I, I respect, and I'm also a professor at this college. USC. USC. But at the time that I graduated, I asked myself this question that week. Did I learn anything? And I thought, I don't think I really learned anything except to... Uh, how to cope better in larger populations. And then I thought, I'm gonna need a job because I'm planning to go to law school right after this summer. And then very, very serendipitously, I overhear a conversation between three law school grads that were in the same apartment complex as I. And they're talking about their easy summer jobs and what that they had, you know, and um, and one of the guys said, yeah, I just quit the cushiest job of all time. And the guy said, where was it? He said, well, it was at Warner Brothers in the legal department. And I just quit. And so I, I, was, I lived in this little apartment and I, I closed the drapes so that I could put my ear against the screen. And they said, yeah, it was at Warner Brothers. His name was Peter Connect that ran the department. He started with Jack Warner, and it was so easy. Company car, it was a breeze. And I'm thinking, great, I need all of those things. <laughs> and so I immediately got the number of Warner Brothers, which was 843-6000, uh, area code 818. And I asked for the legal department. You know, I think I was 22, actually, at the time. And legal department, then I said, can I speak to Mr. Connect's office? They said, yes, I speak to his assistant. I said, I understand you need a law clerk and uh, I'm your person, let me come in. So I came in, got the job that minute, that day, that minute, three o'clock. And to all the people you end up getting in front of? Well, what happened was, yeah, very good. What happened was, is I had nothing to do for the first week, it is cushy, but also boring in this tiny little office. It wasn't even an office, it was a box. So I was working out of a box in the building. And, and uh, um, the next following week, they said, oh, you're delivering these papers. I said, okay, and they hand me these documents this thick. So you're driving them to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and you're gonna ask for Warren Beatty, who was at the time the biggest movie star in the world, also a director, a writer, he was everything, Warren Beatty. And I go to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel where he's living in the, in the penthouse some guy comes down and says, hey, give me the papers. I said, uh, I have to hand them to Mr. Beatty. They said, give me the papers. And so I said, no, I can't give them to you. They would be invalid if I hand them to you. They have to be handed to Mr. Beatty directly. So I have to do that or I have to take them back. And you're completely full of shit. Completely, I just made it up in that moment. And uh, I didn't feel like I was hurting anybody. And so, all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of Warren Beatty on the top floor, and I hand it to him, and I ask him some questions in the meantime, much like you do. <laughs> and and I, I was able to engage him, and he was very generous and spent an hour with me. 
just sitting and talking and you know he sat in a chair I sat on the couch and I just it was very beyond very enchanting it was very uh, information producing so it was great stories but it was the beginning of the demystification of how leverage worked in Hollywood how things work the dynamics because the, Hollywood is very foggy very opaque world and so I started to think it's not just parties there's actually something beneath it that's how it started and then all of a sudden I got to sit in front of uh, Barbara Streisand's agent who's the most powerful agent in the world named Sue Mingers and from that to William Peter Blatty from that to big directors and and then I thought I can expand this and I can do this every day with even if I don't have a job to deliver papers I'll say, hi, my name is Brian Grazer. I work in the legal department at Warner Brothers, and I want to meet your boss for the following reasons, and I do not want a job. And every person said yes, including Lou Wasserman, Jules Stein, the most powerful and talented directors. And, uh, and that's what I did, and I told Mr. Connect that I would stay on for an extra year, and it was Lou Wasserman that really uh, said, said something to me that changed my life. Well, yeah, it, it first explained his oh. significance at that time and then what he told you, Lou. Okay, so Lou, Lou Wasserman was literally the most powerful person in Hollywood or ever to be in Hollywood. So even more than the predecessors of the five studios like Louis B. Mayer, etc., uh, or Jack Warner, because he was just became the patriarch. He spoke for the movie, for the entertainment business. He was everything. And I thought if I could meet him, that would be like a grand slam home run meeting. That'd be like you getting me on the show. There you go. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in any event, so I was able to really work as assistants and get going. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm now up at the 15th floor to meet Lou, Mr. Lou Wasserman. And he's approaching me. And he's a tall man. He, he's a tall man, an imposing figure, an intimidating figure. And before I can, I stick my hand out to shake, and he goes like that. Puts his hands in the air, just hold on. And he could, he had that ESP. He just knew this wasn't worth doing for him. So he said, just a minute. And he turned around, went right back into his office, without me, of course. I'm standing there. And came back with um, a legal tab, you know, a big legal tab, pen, you know, paper and a pencil, 2-H pencil, and he handed me these two items, the paper, the pad, rather, and the pencil. And he said, take those items, and when you put the pencil to the paper, it has greater value than it did as separate parts. Get out! <laughs> and that meant, for, I was very insulting, ashamed by it, but then I realized he was saying, you gotta start writing, you have to own things, you have to own IP. And since he could tell I had no money, I had no connections, I had nothing, so I better make something. And making something was to write uh, stories that were predominantly built out of my imagination, and two of them became television pilots and uh, to be, to, you know, on their on the way to become series. And that was like my start. So you're trying to sell the movie Splash. You'd been trying to do so for years. Uh, tell about what happens with the executive who told you, go away, lose my number, never call me again. 
Oh, well, there's so many of those executives. <laughs> I mean, it was almost unlimited. But the one you're referring to, um, she was the head of production at United Artists. And uh, she, I, she loved me and I loved uh, love her. But uh, at the time, she said, get, as you said, get out, lose my number, never come back. Um, I came back. I mean, she said, you th and she used to tell people like around me, not to me, said, I tried to get rid of Brian Grazer. I'd throw him out the door. He'd come in the window. I'd throw him out the window. He'd come in through the chimney. He'd come in, <laughs> throw him out the chimney, and he'd come in through the pipes and the plumbing. He was just couldn't stop it. And uh, I, I think I was even a little flattered, but uh, eventually uh, she, I can't kept coming in, but she threw the, never did the project. Uh, never. Um, and you said when somebody says no to you, it has no relevance to your no reality. Relevance. What do you it, mean? It's, it's just, someone says no to me, it's just a temporary point of view. That's, that's it. And it's not personal. I take other stuff personally, but I don't take no personally. If you like an idea, uh, what's yeah. the likelihood somebody can convince you otherwise? To not do it, you yeah. mean? To just give up. None. <laughs> How about an instance where you've been unable to get the answer you wanted? I'm not sure I can think of a time that happened. Do you have a time that happened? I, I don't. That's why I don't I'm think it had. I don't think it ever occurred. If if I love something, what I'm loving is not the story, because the story are pieces, parts to the engine that can be changed. But when I love something, it's, I lo I'm loving the heartbeat of what it is. And the heartbeat is the authentic, the authentic voice that lives in your soul or my soul. And that I'm able to communicate. And that heartbeat is a truth and a message that has universality, like love or believing in family and rooting for family. Um, uh, they're underdog stories. They're Horatio Alger stories. That you can do anything stories. All right, so I have to ask because I'm, yeah. you know, curious kind of about your sales techniques because you seem like the ultimate salesman. Um, I, I mean, that's certainly been one of the key elements responsible yeah, you for. Have to, you have to sell the stories to someone right. that wants to pay $100 million right. eventually. And, and you do it as good or better than uh, anybody. But you do something that's uh, kind of funny, too. Tell about the photos you'll creatively place in oh. people's homes. So that's a different thought. Okay, so basically, um, I've done a few things that are kind of distinctive to me. and. Uh, some of them are traits that you're referring to, and others are just physical. Th I mean, I changed my hairdo when nobody had spiked hair. I, I just, because my daughter saw me spike my hair up in a swimming pool, she said, Dad, I love it. It was like three or, and, um, and that became very high spiked hair that I've had for like 25, that I've had for 25 years. The other thing I've had for about 20 years or longer as well, is when I go to somebody's house, no matter whom, for the first time, I bring a picture of myself in a little heart, a little rhinestone heart that I buy at the CVS. And it's always, it's about, started at a dollar, 
69 and now they're, I think, to up to 199 uh, the price of these little heart-shaped. Heart and it's a picture of me kind of going like that, just jokey, kind of kitschy. And I hide them in very prominent places, prominent and coveted places in people's homes. Like the first one I did was to Marvin Davis, who was a big oil wildcatter that had enough money to buy 20th Century Fox, and I got invited to a party. And I put one amongst his, all of his family and esteemed friends and, you know, government dignitaries of all over the world. And I remember right next to Ronald Reagan was my picture. <laughs> and, and I left the party, and I get a phone call the next morning from uh, Marvin Davis's uh, assistant saying, how dare you do that? Mr. Davis has offended beyond belief. You know, and it was like, I, I, just a picture, you know, like, I thought it was funny. And, um, but I didn't say that to her because I was scared. But, but I that just didn't said, stop you either from no, subsequently well, his, doing his really serious reaction. Then he insisted on calling me himself after she assaulted me. And he said, you, you're nothing in this town. You're nobody. He gave me one of those, you're, you're, you're dead in Hollywood. You know, one of those stories. And I thought, wow, if he's willing to be that shaken up over a picture, I'm going to do it to everybody. And, <laughs> and I got better reaction. <laughs> and I mostly got, I've, I say it on TV, like, or whatever. I've done three to Rupert Murdoch in three of his homes. And uh, he never got mad. He, I think he got a kick out of it. I know he did, you know. And uh, um, I've done it, slipped one of George Clooney's books, uh, you know, in a book stand. And it took him quite a while to see it. I put one in one of Owen Wilson's on a shelf. It took a year. I put one in Fidel Castro's military pra uh, palace when I was there for a six-hour lunch. And... In the military palace, my friend says, what are you doing? We'll never get out of this country. <laughs> but it's just a thing that I'm, I really have to do. Bill Gates, I'm, he wasn't mad about it, but he, 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 I don't know if he thought it was funny, but I did that. All right, so you have these curiosity uh, yeah. conversations. You've had anywhere from one a day to a few dozen a year, depend, depending on, I guess, the time of y y your life. Well, um, I try, yeah, in my life now, the last 25 years, I do them. Uh, uh, I, I, I do them without fail every two weeks. A discipline of doing them every two weeks. And the thinking behind them is what? The thinking behind them is it's, um, it tests your ability to communicate because it's, it's Nobel laureates, hundreds of Nobel laureates. Uh, John Nash, who I met, turned, made a movie called The Beautiful Mind that he became the subject of. Um, it, you have to... Understand the, the engine of what they do for a living. So I have to study about the engine, whether it's biochemistry or physics or whatever it is. I have to understand that well enough that I can ask interesting enough questions to them in a language that I don't know at all, that I'm just kind of struggling with. But I have to prove that I've studied and I have to ask good enough questions that it's a good date. You know, like I, these conversations have to be, they're, they're designed to be the best date they've ever had. Well, so I want to ask you about some of them and get your reaction, what, what comes to mind from that experience. Okay. The first one that kind of plays off what you just said, uh, Isaac Asimov. That was terrible. 
Isaac Asimov is the, the most preeminent writer of science fiction ever, probably. Um, I flew to New York, coach seat, of course, and met with he, and he brought his wife. His wife was also his psychiatrist. And he, I met with them, and they ordered club sodas with uh, cranberry juice. And she said, after about two minutes, Isaac, he doesn't know enough about your work. We're leaving. And that was it. Two minutes. They left. And that was tough. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have to do that, but I probably didn't know his work it, as well. And it resonated with you, though, right? It did. That, that experience. Yeah. It, be better prepared. And uh, I don't think I could have ever satisfied them, but, ah. but you know. What else? Uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, Michael Jackson was amazing. The uh, uh, musical prodigy gene, you know. Uh, Michael Jackson, I was always wanting to meet Michael Jackson. Everybody wanted to meet Michael J Jackson. And uh, there was a reason that all of a sudden he wanted to meet me. I owned a, pe uh, you know, a book that was interesting to him and he wanted to meet. And I was just blown away. And he came in, to, uh, on his, I walked him from the, waiting from our lobby to my office, but he had that glove on and, and the high voice. And I thought, wow, I don't think I can talk to him seriously with that glove on. It, it, it just, and I said, do you mind if you take your glove off? And he said, he looked at me like, excuse me, no one's ever asked me that question. And I said, yeah, would you, would you mind taking the glove off? And he eventually said yes. I'd have to, I just had to ask him nicely a few times. And when he took his glove off, his voice changed. It wasn't that high voice. Huh. He had like a real voice. And he became almost like the most brilliant music professor one could ever experience. You know, it was really like Amadeus or something. He spoke about how you create music, how you chore how, how the un your un fundamentals of choreography, how they integrate, everything. And it was just this profound hour I had with him. Uh, Elon Musk and the rocket launch. Oh, Elon Musk and the locker. I, I got to know Elon. He was very generous in meeting me long before he had the, you know, early, before, the, before SpaceX. Um, and... And then when he started building SpaceX, I wanted to come see a launch. He invited me to see a launch. So I did. And the, his, SpaceX is almost like where they built, it's almost the manufacturer of the rocket is, is sort of is there. So thousands of workers that put bolts on and make build the rockets. And it's almost like mission control at the same time because there's a, a room, a booth, which he sits in and is commander of that booth. And everyone's in this glass booth, and the, and the glass has got to be, you know, 15, 20 feet high in this giant warehouse of a... And, and it was so moving. So we got it, like, T-minus 9, and they had to cancel. And all of the engineers and everybody had their... If they, if they could... If there, if there was room, they had their nose up against the glass. And I was in an area... And, Everyone was, they were so, 
It was so exciting. It was so palpable, the feeling, because these people work and, on making the rocket and they get to see the launch and it's all integrated. It was seamless and it was spectacular. And they said, that was a Tuesday. They said, well, you can come back Thursday if you'd like. So I came back Thursday and the launch actually went off. And I got to see the different stages of the launch and the cheering. I didn't even understand why people were cheering, but there was cheering. And I didn't understand the language that was being used during dis, you know, different stages of the development of the acceleration into space. And, and it was just so, and every, other people cried. I mean, it makes me, it's just a you know, really intense experience. What about it touches you so much? The enormity of the space program. And that's kind of what we tried to capture in the launch of Apollo 13. And then I was seeing this, you know, when you get that launch and the James Horner music, it's just, so it, it's just feeling that, but it's magnified because these are the people that are do, making it right there. Their lives, their emotional lives, their intellectual lives are at stake while this is going, happening. So it's just touching. Uh, I, I'm <clears throat> I get very moved by greatness, just human greatness. And greatness can be small things or big things or small things leading to big things, but just human greatness. Speaking of uh, greatness and somebody that's <clears throat> connected to Apollo you know, 13, uh, you were in London and found yourself across from Princess Diana. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, I was. Princess Diana was famous, most famous and beloved woman in the world in this one at this time. And I was trying to do a curiosity conversation with Princess Diana. And I was doing it like very conventionally, you know, like sending letters to Buckingham Palace and, you know, believing, because you have to do a lot of creative visualization. You have to create belief that something will happen. So I was believing that I'm going to reach Princess Diana and she's going to say yes. Well, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, um, coincidentally, we're invited to a royal premiere to premiere our movie Apollo 13. And at our royal premiere, it was going to be Charles and Diana. Charles could not make it. Only Diana made it. Uh, I'm sorry, they both made it to the premiere, but Diana was the only one that went to the black tie after party dinner. And lo and behold, she's sitting directly in front of me. And on her sides are flanked as Tom Hanks on the left and Ron Howard on the right. And I'm right in front of her. And I'm thinking, I'm not gonna ask her all those kind of royal questions and be, you know, the super uptight, polite thing you're supposed to be, because that will bore her to death. Let other people do that. I'm gonna tell her Hollywood stories. I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna find a groove with Princess Di. And so I did find a groove. And I'm talking to her and there's a couple times like Hanks goes, is he crazy? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like what's he doing? And but she was laughing and it was fun. And I felt like now we've eaten the dinner, dessert arrives, 
and we're getting it's a pastry and I was going through this ice cream jag where I just loved ice cream and I thought if they're gonna have ice cream they have everything the princess is here and I asked a waiter with their ice cream and she said pardon me what do you what would you like I said I was just asking for maybe a bowl of ice cream and so they now she's asking so they deliver a bowl of ice cream a nice big bowl of ice cream simply chocolate and vanilla and I take some scoops and I say would you like a scoop and so she picks the spoon up and takes a small scoop and to me that became I'm dating Princess Dot. <laughs> this is now a date you know like which is fictional of course but it was just like that was it and that was the beginning of you know I got her sweat polish 13 sweatshirts for her and the, she and the boys and you know that was that did you hear from her after that no okay but I did it <laughs> uh Jay-Z and American Gangster the Jay-Z and American Gangster story is a great, is a really gratifying story. So basically, I knew Jay-Z uh, long before American Gangster. And um, long before it. And all of a sudden, now I'm making this movie called American Gangster. And I've finished it. And I get a call from Jay that says, I would like to do the soundtrack for American Gangster. Well, we've already shot the movie. We already composed it. And we, there's no soundtrack left. Everything's done. Everything is done. And I say, listen, I would love that, Jay. I mean, nothing would make me more proud and more excited to do that. But we already have the soundtrack album. And he said, that's not possible. I said, no, it's very possible. The movie is locked. And, uh, you know, and he says, well, I'll do a second soundtrack album. It'll be a companion that's inspired by, because I'm very inspired by the life of Frank Lucas. I see some parallels in my life. And I said, sure, if you think you can do it, but it has to be done in 14 days. <laughs> and he says, I will do it. And he did it. He performed in it. He wrote it. See, another thing that will make me emotional. He did everything. He executed a perfect album that became much more, uh, more important and more popular than the soundtrack album. And... Uh, I went and saw him one day in the, in the 13 days that he did it, and he's really working. He's doing everything. And I've just marveled at it because, you know, he's kind of a king in his, in his universe, and I just didn't know he could grind it out like that and make it amazing and do everything with that kind of time pressure. But he was inspired and passionate, had commitment, and he did it. So it was... Um, I really marveled at his, his, his superpowers. What about that, though, uh, makes you emotional? When people achieve greatness, when, when, I, when conditions are, are like that, when conditions are they don't have to, it's impossible. Nobody's done that before. And, and somebody that doesn't have to do it reaches inside of themselves the same way those astronauts up in space, found a way to find something in them to survive in Apollo 13. That's what he did. And I, um, you know, I'm, I just deeply admire it. Two other people you've yeah. had curiosity conversations with, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, I was just really lucky to have him say yes. 
And I was very intimidated by him, very, 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 because you can feel the energy of genius. It it's out, comes out of his pores. And with the energy of genius, there's an intolerance, not an impoliteness, but an intolerance that when you say something stupid or you talk too long, I'm just going to have to pivot. <laughs> you know, I could feel all that. He didn't, he was very polite, but so that was uh, challenging. How'd you handle it? Um, I, I tried to be precise and make it short, you know, and get as much as I can out of it without boring him. <laughs> yeah. And with Jeff Bezos, he came to my office and he was just really kind and humble and had that great laugh then as he does now. And uh, I could have never imagined he'd be the richest man in the world. I mean, I knew he'd be successful and that's why I sort of reached out because he was succeeding at something impossible already. And, um, but he was really easy. And you would see glimpses of genius, like his understanding of physics and, and space and the cosmos, you know. He, he understood things with a high level of depth behind it, but didn't feel the need to show off ever. It's not a show off. I, I want to take you back to when you were a young man, when you were in college. Uh, I believe you're working something like 40 hours a week in addition yeah. to being uh, a, a student. Yeah. Um, and you, with the, the money you make, you buy a Porsche. Why tell people that your parents actually bought it for you? Well, because I went to USC at the time that almost every kid was really rich. That, you know, there were dynastic families, the IBM family, the Watson family. I mean, they, you know, were, were predominantly in my environment <laughs> as a freshman. And I just felt like, wow, I am a real outsider here. I didn't realize I'd be such an outsider. And I thought, um, you know, it was socioeconomic conditions that made it me an outsider. You know, that everybody was. And, and so, therefore, I thought I better... I better change this somehow. <laughs> so basically I thought I need a symbol. And so the symbol would be a Porsche, <laughs> a 911 T Targa. And so what I did is without telling anybody, I worked at the Howard Johnson's on Roscoe Boulevard right out in, in, uh, you know, in, in the San Fernando Valley. And I worked 40 hours a week and I pretty quickly raised enough money to get a down payment to buy a Porsche. So I bought this 911 T Targa and then when people said, what am I doing for Christmas vacation? I'd say, oh, I'm gonna be skiing in Stad. And, and I sort of fictionalized what that was all about. And I created like fictional summers in St. Bart's and, you know, Anguilla and stuff like that. And, um, and that, I don't know if any, I guess that presumably people believed it, I don't know. Why was it important to you to do that? Because I just felt too much of an inferior outsider. You know, I felt, you know, although I, although I did get lucky, one semester to catch up, I took 26 units. And Lynn Swan, who was the number one athlete at USC, a wide receiver, you know, and uh, was the most valuable player of the Super Bowl twice. Anyway, bottom line, Lynn Swan said, Grazer, you're 20, you took 26 units. Because we were kind of friends, well, kind of. And he goes, so everybody started calling me 26. So I immediately had a nickname at USC, 
So having a little bit of a, this identity plus a nickname. Hey, 26, come on over here. You know, like it was always 26. That was my name. And that was kind of helpful too. Uh, your parents, when you were growing up, yeah, um, just, yeah. I believe reasonably tough upbringing. Um, how much would they fight when you were growing up? Well, yeah, they, they fought with each other a lot. I mean, it was very, it was terrorizing. So growing up as a, as a child was, they weren't mean to me. They weren't mean to my brother and sister. They just, there was no reason for them to be married. They shouldn't have married each other. And, and, they, and they weren't really, they were good people, but ill-equipped to be parents, basically. They just weren't, you know, uh, you know it was just hard because they were so incompatible. And so they'd fight, raging fights every night. So I About I felt, what? He'd come home, he was a criminal lawyer. And criminal lawyers, uh, they live the life of criminals. They live in the, in the ethos, they live in the morality, they live in the language of criminals. And I even made a point to, when I became successful, uh, let's get off that, <laughs> to meet the most famous criminal lawyers in the world. And they just do, they rationalize truth. That's how they win. And so, but at the time, so my dad, you know, would stay out very late to two in the morning, probably with other women. Um, and it just, everything, they fought about everything. And so it was just terrorizing. I'm getting divorced. Oh, she, my mom might say, your dad and I are getting divorced. I think be prepared for him to move out, you know, just. And then it wouldn't happen. It, it, it eventually happened. It wouldn't happened, happen but... right, the right way with a clean break. Everything, every, nothing didn't work, you know. So I, I really admired what I thought were normal families. So I want, yeah. How do you think they terrorized you? Because, I, I, because I, I'd hear it because my bedroom was 10 feet away from where they'd fight all yeah. night. And so you're just hearing it. You know, you're hearing bad words. You're hearing loud, horribly loud voices. You're hearing yelling. You're hearing no hitting, just yelling and screaming. It was just terrorizing. What was the interaction like between you and your dad? No connection at all. I mean, he wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't of the generation. It wasn't the kind of dad that ever said, I love you. So, um, you know, that just make creates a different thing when you like reflect back on that as older now and yeah. the, you know a parent of yourself how do you think that impacted you i'm still trying to figure that <laughs> trying to figure it out but you know uh you know on the most superficial on the on the first layers of how it impacted me is it caused me to define all the traits that my father had that i didn't like and don't do them. And I did that pretty early in life, you know, pre-20. You know, like I exercise religiously. I don't stop exercising. I care a lot about med medical and physical health. Uh, uh, or I was to say mental, mental and physical health. Yeah. And that's probably why I do curiosity conversations because 
it very it's it 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 ignites a lot of uh, you know like a lot of cognitive tools that should be in place and activated all the time so it helps me solve creative puzzles it helps me solve human communication puzzles it, it so he I do all the things that he never did. He didn't do any of those things. Um, I don't drink excessively, eat excessively. I do everything in moderation, but I do it. What did he say to you the one time you wanted to, I think, make something with wood in your backyard as a kid? No, they were building a school, Topeka Drive Elementary School behind our house. And he goes, Bri, they're building a school over there. Maybe grab some of the wood and nails and stuff. So he would encourage me. He was the wrong. He, he was the wrong moral compass. What about uh, you and your mom? She was a really good person, a really good mom. I mean, a really, a really, really good person. But unfortunately, because the the marriage was bad, it, uh, you know, it it wasn't, you know, it didn't make her. She wasn't confident enough. But she was a good person, really it, good person. And then her. Mom, your well, grandma. Well, her mom was meaning my grandmother was kind of everything to me. She was stable and empowering, super empowering. Like she'd see because I'm acutely dyslexic, she'd see these straight Fs on my report card, and she goes, "You're going all the way. Think big, be big, you know." But being serious, yeah, or at being least serious. She was really serious. She was positive I was going to be successful. Positive. And I would say there's really no empirical evidence that proves that <laughs> to be true. And she just would override all logic or, you know, lo uh, you know the logic of optics. And so she just was a believer. And the difference you think that made in your life was what? Substantial. You just need, I believe you just need one person that's consistent, that consistently can be around and believe in you and find features in you that that uh, are that are value that are that that have value you know she'd go you have a gift of gab you'll go all the way <laughs> a gift of gab meant you I could talk anyone into anything I could do which I, I kind of could actually uh, how about football tryouts oh anyway football so I did a lot of sports and um, I was a pretty tough kid, like really tough, like the toughest kid in my elementary and junior high school. I could beat anybody up. And, and, and you kids, would occasionally, like you, if you I saw a bully, right? Yeah. What? If you saw a bully, yeah, like you yeah, wouldn't I, have any of that. Yeah, I often would beat up bullies. You know, I wasn't, it wasn't like a Robin Hood complex. I just didn't like bullies. So, uh, and then it got to be a point where, you know, playing football and all this stuff, all the, my friends became between 6'2 and 6'5 in high school. And I was 5'4 <laughs> in freshman. And then, I, and then junior, I was like 5'8. But nonetheless, so I went out for high school football. I went out for high school football, and the coach was Coach Ogawa. And Coach Ogawa decided after Hell Week, which I barely made it through Hell Week, but I did, that everyone, 300 kids, were going to all be in this big auditorium. And the job was, Say your name and your status. Perry Sel Shellmeyer, tailback. Richard Cox, my best friend, uh, quarterback. Um, Richard Fenton, lineman. Da -da -da. Rich, uh, Chris Parkinson, 
defensive end, Brian Grazer, tailback, incorrect. And I go, I think I'm incorrect. He says, cut. So he cut me in front of the whole, you know, of all divisions of the football team. So that was embarrassing. Devastating? Devastating. Absolutely horrible. And, and so I immediately went out for, I just didn't know what to do. Devast it was devastating, Coach Ogawa, to this day. And so then I went out for high school. Then I decided I'd go out for swimming because that, that was the only thing that left and I could get out of a class. So I went out for swimming and I, I didn't really swim much. Sometimes I'd hold the side of the pool, I'd swim, but then I could swim. I mean, I was a strong kid. Anyway, bottom line is we have, our, we have our, a city meet, which is a pre-city, uh, the city of Los Angeles was 65 schools. And I, the guy goes, uh, Coach Wiley goes, Grazer, lane eight, 100 butterfly. And I broke the city record that moment. And the enthusiasm from that stuck with you for yeah. a, a long time. Yeah, that was good. Uh, you mentioned everybody the, should win once. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the, the grades were a struggle when you were growing yeah. up, but you had a, a resourceful eye that uh, helped in improving the grades in high school, right? Well, I would challenge every grade, and challenging every grade was, you know, was improving my grade through uh, through conversation. So I'd say, oh, you know, my C should be a B, and I would like to justify it. Will you take the test? Yes, can I do it verbally? Oh, why don't we just do it right now? And I would just like, was, I was good, because I, I kind of get the inner game of things. How old were you when you could read and write? Um, I struggled. Probably the fifth grade, I could begin to read and spell. And then I got better as time went. And then in college, I became rather good at taking tests because I found, I developed a system for myself. Which was what? Which was really just synth or, uh, uh, s constant resynthesizing re what I'd learned. So I'd have a mass of information and then I'd synthesize it down to something that I could understand again the mechanics of what was the application of things so once i could understand the application of something then i could remember the essential ingredients that it would take to of the, what would the test would be so i would remember i would have all that yellow you know underlined in yellow i would expose myself to that right before i went to bed the night of and have that enter my subconscious. And I found that very, 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 very effective. What specifically would you struggle with reading, especially early on? Like in terms of the process, when you're actually seeing the words? Oh, I, well, I immediately go from right to left instead of left to right. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, first I just could not pronounce a word. I still find it kind of hard. I mean, if I look at a word, I'd have to, you know, sound it out phonetically, this, that. It was imp just impossible, literally imp impossible. And how did you teach yourself how to do it? Well, Mr. Polavoy was my teacher. <laughs> that didn't work, <laughs> but he tried, really tried. Um, it just kind of happened, like an epiphany almost. 
I had this moment where things started to have clarity or line up, you know, where where wasn't words weren't spinning around. They they I, so uh, so that happened. They never, to be accurate, they don't spin around, but they just can't. I can't compute them. Um, in the issues the dyslexia created for you was what? Um, resourcefulness. I mean, it teaches you, you have to get good grades. And you have, there's certain things you have to, you know, if you create goals for yourself, those things have to be achieved. And I'm very goal oriented. So I wanted to achieve those goals, but I was unable to do it conventionally through reading. So I found other ways. And so being resourceful can be applied to anything and everything. And that's what these, you know, tech entrepreneurs largely do. Oh, and your oldest son, uh, uh, your, your oldest son, Riley, yeah, correct Riley. me if I'm wrong, uh, lives in an assisted living he facility. I think works at, uh, I think you said Whole Foods. Um, what, how, how did your dyslexia growing up, you think prepared you for uh, figuring out how to handle that? Well, with Riley, what happened is, you know, and Riley was named Riley because of a show called The Life of Riley. William Bendix is in a hammock because his life is so great. I just thought this boy was going to have the greatest life in the world. He was so beautiful. And uh, just a second. Sure. And so, and so, you know, I think I was a very good dad. His mom's a very good mom. And so we wanted to get him in groups of people. And so I remember with ki other kids, and I just remember at a soccer game at, at, at uh, Pepperdine, Uni Pepperdine, he was running in the wrong direction all the time. <laughs> I mean, literally running in the wrong direction. Just everything was out of coordination alignment. Uh, you, if you threw him a ball, instead of two hands, he'd try to get, <laughs> hit one hand. It would just, you know, just things were out of alignment. It was very, very difficult to diagnose. Um, and we went to a lot of effort to try to find ways, to, you know, tasks to diagnose uh, his disability. And um, I worked at it very hard. His mom, Corky, worked at it very hard. Anyway, eventually, you know, we found that it was, uh, you know, pretty acute form of Asperger's. That's the, that was the classification of it. And, um, and so he's, you know, he has some skills and some not, but, um, but how it affected me was more, I became not a type A personality exactly, but not far from that. So I was already successful. And so therefore I was just like a force. I was like so much energy of a force going forward with, with my career, um, that this was a, like a, an interruption of the way I saw the world. So I, Riley's inconsistencies and disability, I didn't see the world that way. So I thought, wow, I have to help Riley. And I don't think it was deeply connected to my earlier disability of, um, you know, because his disability was so different that it was so unrelated. But it was more like, I just better wake up and change the way I see the world. The world is full of unpredictable events. It's full of things that aren't right. You know, there's, and so, so it just caused me to be the better part of me. 
how cool was him running for student council president? <laughs> okay, so that was amazing. So Riley was always in a, you know, it was always in those special ed classes, but mainstreamed into Malibu High, which is a very big and cool high school, Malibu High. So I've now found he's been in Malibu High for two years, and almost all of his classes are, you know, are these special ed classes that are only a couple kids in the class. And then he might mainstream into a few things. I always felt it'd be really important for him to be in a school with a larger population because I just know being in larger populations and dealing with large is valuable, maybe the most valuable thing you can do. So I've now found the perfect school that's not Malibu High because I can see he's never going to make it, never. And I said, I found this school in Pasadena, da 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 and time, and you're going to be going, and I thought he'd be thrilled. He goes, oh, no, Dad, I, I'm not going to go there. I go, why not? You wanted to go. No, no, but I've decided now I'm going to run for student body president of the whole school. I said, oh, really? <laughs> and I said, uh, I think you're going to really like this school. He goes, no, 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 I'm running for office. I'm running for student body president. I go, how about treasurer? <laughs> no, no. And so he ran for student body president against these really sharp kids. You know, one kid was... A great kid. He's the son of one of my very good friends, Eric Roth, who won an Oscar for writing Forrest Gump. And this kid was a gifted kid, too. And Riley ends up winning. He won student body president. And I was too freaked out to show up for it. So I sent my assistant there to film it. And I get this call. Riley won. It was just, it was just amazing. How did, how did it make and, you feel? Well, it made me feel... Like, he definitely made the right choice to run for office. But it's, it made me feel, it gave me a lot of knowledge about parenting, that <clears throat> you want your kid to own something. And owning something, even if it, there's no prevailing logic that says, they, you know, like, Riley's not going to be student body president. And um, it's just not possible. Like, there's no, 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 it doesn't add up, you know. Um, that he owned it and he, and he, whether he won or not, he was owning something that he really wanted to do. And when you own something as a kid or in life, it, it, it's probably the most meaningful thing you can do, like is to work for something you can own. How did Riley influence your decision to make a beautiful mind? Well, he influenced it because um, I saw people, you know, kids do mean tricks on Riley, you know, and I thought, wow. It's tough enough for him to just cope with, you know, deal with this disability. Now he's got to be stigmatized for it. And then I started, not only saw Riley that way, I started to see other people in the world, you know, the Muzak of the world, <laughs> you know, where you don't really notice that guy banging his head into a garbage can or a telephone pole or a post. I start to see those people. They start to pop out at me and I start to realize they're people too. And there are people like any version, any you know, versions of Riley. You know, like they're more extreme than Riley, but they're versions of, they're all versions of one another. And I thought it's hard enough just to deal with the disability. Why do we as human beings have to stigmatize them and make it harder and cause isolation for them, which is the worst thing. 
What was the epiphany you had one day while watching The Shining? To, well, by watching The Shining, there's a, there's, there's a sequence, very important sequence, where the protagonist is talking to an imaginary, to imaginary people. And I thought that that plus this woman named Veronica de Negre that survived torture by creating an alter, by living in an alternate reality. So, so who Sting introduced you to? Yeah, that Sting introduced me to. Um, so between seeing it physically, cinematically in The Shining, and hearing Veronica de Negre's story of survival of being tortured unpredictability, unpredictably uh, every day for I think it was 18 months or two years living in this other story means I think I should start a beautiful mind in a false reality, you know, in a false reality, in an alternate reality that lives in the mind of a schizophrenic, a schizophrenic, which is multiple realities. So it was organic to that movie and Ron was very good at it and Akiva Goldman won an Oscar for writing it. I, I just simply had a slight inspiration but he created it, Akiva, and uh, yeah. why, why was it the most gratifying film you ever made? Because it succeeded commercially in a very huge way. It succeeded uh, critically in a huge way. We won Oscars, and it succeeded at helping people. You know, I succeeded when I went to a mark, you know, supermarket or wherever I went. People would go, "Oh my God, your movie helped my cousin." Nobody understood him, and you know, so it was, it was, it was enlightening that way. When you won uh, the Oscar for uh, a, a Beautiful Mind, you, you said it was as if every dream or fantasy that never happened in my life happened in that single moment. Uh, yeah. Explain why. It's just, it's just what happens. Um, I didn't know the show was that emotional. <laughs> Um, well, because if you're in the storytelling business, you know, I was in the, I'm in the storytelling business and I tell stories for a reason because they interest me and if they're good, they have an impact on the culture. And so this story had an impact on the culture, it succeeded at a dream like having tremendous impact on the culture and by helping the way we embrace and understand humanity. And so that's fundamentally my singular goal. All right, so take me to an earlier <laughs> Oscars when uh, you mistook Braveheart winning for oh, yeah, you yeah. winning. So, okay, on Apollo 13, all of a sudden, this movie that we didn't think was going to be commercially successful is enormously successful commercially. And then we think that story ends and we just victory, you know, through the uprights. But then we get invited to go to the Oscars because we didn't realize, wow, we could even get nominated. And the movie got nine Oscar nominations, the most important Oscar nominations. And everyone said, you're going to win the Oscar. It's Apollo 13. It's patriotic. It intersects with the, the anniversary of the space program, NASA, and all these things. And I'm positive I'm gonna win now. Like I didn't, from nothing, to thinking now I'm winning the Oscar. And I've written my speech, it's in my tuxedo pocket on the left side. I'm 
certain I'm going to win. Every odds maker in the world has said Apollo 13 is going to win. And I'm sitting at the edge of the ch my chair along with the other four, so a total of five Oscar produ you know, produce, producers that produced the Oscar-nominated films. And I'm sure I'm going up. So I'm looking at Sidney Portier right in front of me. Uh, the Oscar-winning actor himself very deliberately, slowly, methodically opened the envelope to the Oscar. Who's going to win the Oscar? And he says, and the winner is, opens it up slowly. I'm like at the edge of my chair and I see what looks like a bee rolling off his lip. And I'm thinking, I just thought it was me saying, saying Brian. And I got up to get the Oscar and they say Braveheart. And this was literally so embarrassing because <laughs> I'm standing in the aisle when he says Braveheart. So I have to walk backwards to my seat and... Uh, I mean, kind of funny now, probably not yeah, at all. Yeah, funny. So I walk backwards to my seat and there's, uh, you know, Ron and Tom Hanks are next to me. And the further seat out is Jim Lovell, the actual astronaut, the real astronaut that went into space on Apollo 13. And he reached across them and grabbed my wrist and said, I never made it to the moon either. And that just put the whole thing in a bigger perspective. <laughs> Again, wasn't very funny, but it was really truthful. Didn't a studio exec too, like give you the... Oh yeah, the studio exec that, uh, that actually, yeah, went like, loser. <laughs> on the, my forehead when I look back up, like that. Only 40 million people were seeing it. <laughs> um, so uh, Tom Hanks once said about you, he really knows how to get talent, how to interest them, how to get them involved, and how to please them. What do you do? Well, you try your very best, you, you know, use all of your intuitive powers, because there's no scientific powers, to match the skill of the actor, which there, can, there might be a thousand traits the actor has, or a hundred traits, but only one is their superpower. So it's you find that exact superpower and you say, that superpower is realized or actualized in the role that's written. And that, you try to match that. And, and that, that, that's hard. And that, and that gives you, you know, so if you get that right, then it's just making sure that the actor is always utilizing and operating with that superpower. So when it's off the narrative or the vertical line of that, you, you help the director and you help the actor to get on that very thin line, that vertical line to, to, to which is the story and the superpower. Uh, I, but, you know, managing people and managing probably extraordinary well, egos in some situations. I mean, I will sublimate myself I, well, uh, completely to get the best work out of Well, and that's what I heard, too. Like, I mean, just some of the extraordinary things. lengths you've had to go to, you know, play into well, the with, actor's Well, let's say needs. Tom Cruise, who I love to work with. He has the greatest work ethic known to man. <laughs> Um, with him, I immediately had the intuition to shift the power I have to give to him. I said, basically, we need a role model, we need a team captain, knowing that theoretically that's supposed to be me. 
would you be that? And he goes, absolutely, I'll do it. And then he does it. And his power is leading the charge. And there's no one better than him leading the charge. Because he has an outstanding work ethic, ethic and he's, he doesn't say grind people, he's just a role model that you want to live up to that work ethic. And, um, and so, so, you know, that seems not hard to do, but it's, there's a lot of juggling and logistics you have to do to, to keep his superpower in alignment. You know, not, not his, I don't want to say it that way, but, you know, there's some actors, uh, you know, an Oscar-winning actor that I have to, had to listen to him play music all night. I would have to, just a lot of intolerance. <laughs> how about the most difficult situation you ever encountered with an actor and how you worked your way through it? Well, that might have been this, this uh, Jim Carrey on the movie How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Because he is, he's a genius, Jim Carrey, a genius. And you want his genius. His genius was being completely suffocated in this epoxy suit he had to wear that took five hours, six hours sometimes to, to adhere to him, <laughs> to be the Grinch. But he was determined to do it until he had to put on these contact lenses, these big frisbees on his eyeballs to make his eyes green because he is a stickler for authenticity. And I said, we could do it digitally. No, no, I'll wear that thing. And he, then one day he said, I quit. What do you mean I he quit? quits? He, it was before we could sh start shooting, like two weeks out. He said, I have to quit. This is killing me. This is torturous. And I'll give all the money back and I will give all the money back plus interest. I just can't do it. It's too torturous. And so I thought, would you give me the weekend and decide on Monday? And he said, I'd do that. And I knew a, a man that worked for, for the State Department that trains, you know, how, how soldiers can survive torture and CIA, FBI, uh, Navy SEALs. This guy is the number one expert in the world at teaching survival techniques in, in situations of torture. Be, being buried alive for two weeks, how to survive. So this guy, Jim is being tortured. I'm gonna call him, his name is Richard. I call Richard, I say, I'll pay you, you come out here, spend the weekend with Jim Carrey, he did. And then Monday, Jim Carrey says, I'm in, I'll do it. It was amazing. Why will you sometimes go on set incognito? I want to see how the crew is being treated. I want to watch. I want to be. I want to see how the power dynamics are working. And there was a set. There's been a few sets where I uh, I was incognito, as you said, and I went um, to the caterer to try to get some food because I was entitled to get food. And they're really abusive. Like, get to the back of the line. I said, well, there is no line right now. You know, and they were really dicky about it. And then the first assistant was the one that caused them to be dicky. And so then this first assistant learned that that was actually me. I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah, I didn't know it was you. I go, that's the point. And so that wasn't good what'd you do as a result of that let him go 
Explain why if uh, somebody screws you over, um, you'll never address it with them. I just don't think there's a point in telling them why that they screwed you screwed me over. What are they going to do? They say sorry or say sorry a lot of times, but that's they just revealed who they were basically, and and sometimes you're. You know, sometimes being screwed over is just part of the game and doesn't mean you can't get to the goal you've got. It just means that person that you thought was a friend or uh, is an impediment. Um, and then you just figure out how to get there knowing that that person's an impediment. How true is it that you have enormous social anxiety? Well, I like to I like to be a good guest, so I do have a I do have a lot of social anxiety. Oh. It doesn't ever look like I have social anxiety, ever to anybody. But, but like, in what ways will you have it? Um, just demands I put upon myself. Uh, like demands what? to, well, the insecurity of fitting in, the demand of of myself of, of when I do fit in, that I'm exceptional. That I, I don't grab the limelight, but when a subject that's coming, that I can field any subject at any time, which I, I think I can. <laughs> well, because I do so many of these curiosity right. conversations and I research them and, I, and they, they're not Zooms where you forget the location of what you're doing. Right. You know, you get to ground what you've learned in an experience, in a location, in moments, in pupil dilation, in uh, facial recognition, in uh, physiognomy, in all body language, you know, so it becomes emotional. And uh, so I remember a lot. Well, and you, you said you aren't outgoing, yet you put yourself in situations where you have to act that way all yeah. the time. Yeah. I. I'm most comfortable when I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting the most done by disrupting my comfort zone. So therefore, why? as a goal-oriented person, I'm happy. <laughs> but why, why do you feel that way? Which way? Oh, that, that you're, uh, you know, you do the best when you're uncomfortable. Because I have to rise to the occasion of being, again, you know, not a bragger, but this, one of the, you know, smarter, sm the smart of the smartest kid in the room. I just want it to be seamless. I want people to understand that I understand. <laughs> that's that's important to you. Yeah, it's important to me. Um, it, it, that I get it. And why? Whatever the thing. Why? Well, yeah, especially now. I mean, after mm. like all the success you've because had. Because people are. Our culture is evolving and becoming smarter and smarter. And, 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 you know, tech entrepreneurs are becoming smarter and smarter at certain things. And they're digging holes in the earth deeper and deeper and deeper. And I want to understand it. I want to be able to communicate with those people. I don't even need to get, I, I just want to, I want to get it. And I want them to understand that I get it. <laughs> so why did uh, Ron Howard used to think you were on cocaine all the time? Because I was really high strung. I mean, I, did he tell you that or? Uh, no, but no, he did. Not, that, uh, no, I he read did. that, he, yeah. 
One, like decades later, he said, I thought you were always coked up. Are you, I said, you're kidding. Uh, he said, no, we really thought, Cheryl and I really thought you were doing a lot. And I, but of course I wasn't. I'm just really amped up, you know, like, right. This is the, the most, you know, elegant version of me. <laughs> no, but I'm, I just have a, I talk, you know, when I'm going, I talk very fast and I, I talk with a lot of energy. I speak with a lot of energy. And, it, and so 30 years ago, it was way, way less refined. And so we just thought, this dude's going down, which I wasn't. How superstitious are you? Very. How so? I'm extremely superstitious. Uh, I always put a pe uh, any penny that is on the ground, I put in my left pocket. I do, I've done that for 30 years. I don't care if I'm riding a bike, a motorcycle, whatever I'm doing, I stop, I turn around and get that penny. Uh, I did a thing that was really superstitious the other day. I forgot what it was. And someone says, wow, you're really superstitious. I said, yeah, I am. I forget what it was, but I just, um, you know, and I also, you know, are, I think superstition my version of superstition also also interfaces with karma because i don't really you know I've, i grew up with you know I, I i don't i'm not really religious but i'm really karmic so i so my outgoing nature is is to be is to be friendly really really friendly like overly friendly to people like hey how you doing you know or you know, to interns, like, what are you working on? <laughs> or, or like, hey, you look good. You know, like always, because I feel they feel it. And I know I would feel it at the time that, you know, at, at that age. And I think it's just, I want the tip on the jump ball, you know, in life. I want things to go well for me. I want to have good health. I want to, you know, and I think karma factors into that. You said before that you've been motivated by the fear of not having money. Um, explain yeah, I don't, that. I'm not motivated by greed. Right. I'm not even, uh, I, 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 I'm motivated more by fear and, and fears. I have a lot of fears. Of what? Well, you said money. I don't want to have no money. Um, and that seems quite unlikely at this point in my life <laughs> to have no money. But I mean, there's some people that are much wealthier than I am that still have that fear. You know, they have that thing, that little seed. Um, what else am I afraid of? Complacency? Definitely, compl yes. <laughs> Definitely it would be complacency, atrophy. Like, not physical atrophy, although I don't want that either, but just mental atrophy. That's why I create all these thought puzzles all the time. In fact, I even paint, well, the only one painting I, I would probably let you see is I, I painted a Schrodinger's cat, you know, which is a thought experiment, of course. And I thought everything else is the stuff that you saw in my art studio. It's uh, all girl bands, uh, Barbies that never existed, <laughs> and uh, those other Barbies that are against the, 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 the wanted ads, you know, that kind of thing. But basically those uh, women, um, but based, so, so uh, yeah, mental atrophy. So I try to do things that, 
that, you know, engage, you know, engage thought, engage all sorts of, you know, mentally cognitive puzzles. Before you made it big, yeah. what were creative ways you went about saving money? They were so stupid. Well, I made money even when I was young because I always had odd jobs selling magazines, selling National Geographic, Fuller Brush, endless jobs. A paper out that they, Valley News and Green Sheet when I was eight years old, and it was a voluntary payment. That's why Tom Hanks said I was a good, he's perfect producer. He's doing a free paper out and still getting money. <laughs> so anyway. Um, so, you know, I put a bunch of money in a metal strong box and buried it in a mountain, in a hill, <laughs> where Porter Ranch is in north, in north part of San Fernando Valley, where it was only just mountains. I dug a hole and put $6,000 in it, which was probably then like $25,000. Wow. Why did you? I don't know. I just thought it would get stolen or I, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, all right, I, I put it in a couple spots, and then I thought, no, I'm going to put it in a strong box. <laughs> to that. So. Uh, um, two people I'm going to be talking to coming up about okay. you were Bob Iger and Ron Howard, so I wanted to ask you yeah. uh, about them. First, uh, on the uh, Bob Iger uh, front, yeah. how did the two of you meet in the first place? Well, I don't, re you know, we met, um, I think we were both going through divorces around that time, and I was making a lot of movies in New York, and he was, you know, a very big deal at, uh, he was running ABC in New York. And then he came out to LA and ran ABC. In pretty the, quickly thereafter. So I probably met him in business first, and then, you know, we just liked each other r right off. I mean, yeah. The, the, and it's a commitment to, I think you guys grab coffee basically once a week. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, Make a point to see each other once a week. I mean, that's a commitment, especially. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's building it. and maintaining a friendship. And I, I think, I know it matters to me. I have, you know, to maintain male friendships. That's success for me. What about him, do you think, made you two hit it off? Uh, maybe I'm at his alter ego. <laughs> oh, come on. Um, what made him... Probably, okay, I think he's a very, very curious guy. He's used his curiosity to build Disney, you know, like really, like what if I could, what if I could actually get Pixar, even though Steve Jobs said no. And then he does it, and then he integrates it, and then he succeeds at it. So he, he has a curiosity that really drives his life, and I have a curiosity that drives my life. So there's an access point there. Um, neither one of us want to be bored. So we both keep it interesting, you know, and when we're not interested, when we're not interesting, we go, okay, see you tomorrow, or something like that. So we, we like the challenge of interesting one another, you know, interesting, uh, being able to interest one another. Ron Howard. Y yes. How well do you recall your first meeting with him and the fact that he really didn't want to be there? I can remember it vividly. So basically, Ron Howard, I was meeting a person every single day and I didn't get my quota of having that one person. I looked out my window and I see Richie Cunningham, Ron Howard. 
I yell out the window, Ron, Ron Howard, like that. And he just darted away from me. I mean, it makes sense. It was, I scared him. <laughs> and then I called his office, said to his assistant, Louisa, what went down? And she said, well, I, I'm sure I could get him to call you. And then he did. And then he came into my office. And uh, I just remember it was like this golden aura around him. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this guy is a special person. And, um, and the aura itself just like, you know, brought goodness into the room. And I thought that was a really unique sensation that a human being could have, that, it, that he emanated that kind of aura. And then... Uh, and you said you decided almost immediately that you were going to bet on him. Yeah, that I would bet on him. I, I immediately said, I have two stories that, that, that I'm going to make into movies, and they're, you know, they're, they're down the road. One was called Night Shift, about a call girl ring run out of the New York City morgue. R-rated, of course, and the other was a PG-13 movie about a man falling in love with a girl that turned into being a moon. <laughs> it happened to become a mermaid. <laughs> and so uh, he wanted to do the um, R-rated movie because he, he had a mustache now. <laughs> he wanted to be a different guy. Um, he, he didn't want to be, you know, he, of course, you know, was always grateful that he could become, that he was one of the biggest stars in the world and was like a, an American icon. But he wanted to be, do different things. He wanted to have more edge. And so he wasn't, didn't want to be doing a mermaid movie to start. And speaking of the mustache, tell about the Andy Warhol painting that could have been. Okay, I also knew Andy Warhol and I had a great curiosity conversation with him and became friends. Like I could see him often in New York. And one time he, Andy said to me, you know, it occurred to me that you have a partnership, I believe, with Ron Howard. He's an American icon. I would love to shave his mustache off and, and turn it into one of my silk screens. I'd like to do a before and after. One giant uh, uh, photograph that would be with the mustache that would become a silk screen, and then the after. I tell Ron, said, Andy wants to do this thing, and he's going to give you the original. No, I don't want to do it. I go, it's Andy Warhol. Now, I really like my mustache, I, and it's become part of me. Nothing, I'm not shaving my mustache. I said, okay. So I tell Andy. He goes, oh, that's too bad. I go, what are you going to do now, Andy? What are you doing this week? Um, I'm going to be doing a love boat. I'm acting in a love boat. I thought, wow, this guy's so eclectic. And, um, and that was the story of that. Now, the postscript is that about, you know, four or five years later, Ron and I were used to when a movie that we made came out, we would go to the movie theater on Friday. Since Splash, we, was, we always felt like we had hits and the movie theater would be packed. So I had this movie called Cry Baby that John Waters uh, directed that it was either going to be a smash hit or a flop. Johnny Depp's very first movie. And, you know, it had Iggy Pop and it had a lot of Patty Hearst, all these characters in it. And I said, Ron, let's go, let's see it together. And he said, well, I have a, um, 
you know, a, a flight out of here at midnight to, to go back to New York, but I could do it. So we see the movie, we go to the movie theater, AFCO Cinema, 600 seat house. There's seven people in the whole theater. Total wipeout flop. And Ron goes, wow, what do we do? I said, I don't know, let's go back to my house and you know, like get drunk or something. He goes, yeah, we could do a version of that. Go back to my house, drink a bottle of red wine. Then I say, let's start watching Drugstore Cowboy to make, it, make us more morose. <laughs> and so, and then we start watching that, which is a really good and effective movie. And then we drank another bottle of wine and he went to the airport and he got there early and he went to the bathroom because he was there early and decided to shave and odd things. And he was kind of drunk and he shaved his mustache off for free. So he never got those Warhols. <laughs> and he thought it was funny and I thought it was funny and ironic as well. Uh, uh, you said you guys work well together because you never tell one another what to do. Yeah. Uh, explain that. We don't use declarative sentences really on each other. We don't fight. We're very respectful, very, you know, we talk, you know, we talk about everything and we're friends, but we're, but we're respectful and polite, which is kind of a Midwestern way, which is Ron. So I, I'm more rowdy, but I conform, I conform to that and, and I, I respect it. I respect it and I think it works and that's what makes partnerships work, respect. So, so I'd say, so that's, that's kind of how it is. So we don't, if, if he, if I, there's a movie he wants to direct and I don't want him to, I think it'd be a big mistake. I just go, I, you know, you can do whatever you want, Ron, you've earned it. But, you know, I don't know. And he goes, well, would you do it? No, I wouldn't do it. I, I don't, wouldn't recommend you doing it, but I, I could never say don't do it because you've earned through all of your hits to do what you want. And so we, that's sort of how it works. Ooh. Or if I don't like a movie score, he's had two movie scores I didn't like at all. I hated one of them. I thought it stopped the momentum of the film, like destroyed it. And so normally I'd just go, he'd say, what do you think of the score? I love it. And I'd go, I don't know. And that means, that would, he knows that that means I don't like it. But I don't ever go like, that's terrible, man. I hate that. And we just don't talk like that. Uh, longest relationship you've ever had? <laughs> ever. <laughs> longer, almost, well, longer than my dad because my dad died so young. <laughs> but, but no, longer than, any, longer than anything. It's been almost 40 years. It's the longest partnership in all of Hollywood's history. How do you view marriage? Well, I'm so happy in marriage. I love it. I mean, I have respect for it and I'm hopeful and I was disappointed when the ones that didn't work didn't work. But I got great kids and, and those four great kids are, you know, very unified in our family. You know, very, you know I'm their father, uh, Veronica's a stepmother. They love her, they talk to her often before they call me. You know, like, hey, will you help me with this? And, because she's very left brain, she can solve any problem at any time, any, literally anything. Uh, what do you think you've learned about yourself through your marriages? There were trial marriages. <laughs> there were trials. <laughs> <Brian>. <laughs> 
And because life is trial and error, you know, it's <laughs> so though I got these four good kids and all that. And, um, you know, life's an experiment. <laughs> how, do you, how do you think you do at marriage? I think, I, I believe in it, and I, I think I do well at it. Um, you know, it's really knowing yourself and really knowing the other person and being truthful about those things. And so, you know, you have to be in exact alignment on, on those, on what you are, what they are, and then chemistry defines, you know, how that feels, and then, um, you know, it, it's, it's that. <laughs> I, I read uh, somewhere you said after your last divorce, you told yourself you were never going to get married again. Um, yeah, that was like at least 10 years ago. What, yeah. Like what, um, like when did you have the realization that like, oh my gosh, like this is it? Well. I mean, in terms of like, you're going to do you're it. You're going to get married get again. Married yeah. Right here. Um, with 350 people right on this area here. So basically, um, I just think my wife has so much goodness in her. I'm very, very attracted to goodness. I'm very aligned with goodness. Uh, I think I'm a good guy. You know, I think I have a good heart and I think I do good things. And um, I think Ron is like an exceptionally good person. And I think my wife is an exceptionally good person. Uh, it's their nature. My goodness is, I think I have a good heart, but I do things that are, I'm, consci I'm conscientious of goodness. I think they are just good. Um, what, what's the distinction? Some people are very, like my wife is, is very charitable, very generous with her time, helping in multiple organizations, very conscientiously, you know, very uniquely kind to the kids and not babies them, because that's not gonna work, but, you know, there's those kinds of people that are just more giving than taking. I like to, I take more than they do, meaning Ron and, and Veronica. I would probably be, I'm not a taker, but I take more than they do. Uh, so I want to completely shift gears here okay, and talk yeah, to you about okay. uh, the uh, sports movies that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've been involved with over yeah. the years and just mention a name and get what comes to mind. I think I told you uh, a little while before he passed away, we spent uh, two days with Nicky Lauda in Austria and Belgium oh, yeah, you did ta uh, yeah. taping an episode. Yeah. So how about uh, Rush? Like just what comes to mind for you from that experience? that in the making of a movie and in the cutting and post-production of a movie, it can have a remarkable change. Like a, and so Ron, you know, who directed a movie, the, his rough cut, like I, I thought, oh boy. And then he just kept working on it, work, that, that things can, movies can completely transform from what they, what they were you know, when they're finished as a rough cut to a final cut with music and mix and sound. That movie really benefited from sound effects and music and style and 
It had a lot of things that are optically and sonically exciting and enriching and stimulating. And those things all came into play at the final, final cut of that movie. I also like, you know, I like the characters so much. I like that Nikki Lada was just so determined, but wasn't really very sexy. Whereas, you know, the other character played by Chris Hemsworth, James Hunt, yeah. James Hunt, sorry, um, was really sexy and seemed like everything was so, everything was so easy. Getting girls was so easy. Winning was so easy. And in life, you know, the more solid values, you know, the Nikki Lauda character, its character is more powerful, more solid, and, and probably the right way to go. <laughs> uh, Cinderella Man. And I think you guys actually screened that at the White House, too. We did. We screened Cinderella Man at the White House for George W. Bush. And I went that day, because I, anytime I do anything, I pack in stuff. I met with Barack Obama, who was a senator, and then in the office, the 99th office of the Senate, which you have to take a monorail to. It is like going <laughs> to the Department of the Motor Vehicles. It's, I, I, I met the, this man, the senator, that delivered one of the greatest speeches of all time. And he's just sitting there with his arms and out like this, real relaxed the way you see him with his arms spread open. And I just thought, wow, this dude is so cool. Like, and he's fine with being in that office number 99 and he was just as comfortable being president. You know, like, uh, so that was awesome. And then I went from that office to the number two office, John McCain, which sure. I think was Thomas Jefferson's. And he could just walk right out the door and be on the Senate floor, whereas Barack, of course, had to get on the monorail and do from room to train, a lot of transfers. And uh, it was, I just was very delighted and privileged to be able to do all that stuff. And we did, uh, we did actually um, screen uh, Cinderella Man, and I've met a lot of presidents, you know, in my, you know, uh, life. And I found that George W. Bush was really the most comfortable in his own skin. There was no president more comfortable in his own skin and more satisfied with his present job being president. A lot of other presidents are also want other stuff. They're lobbying other things. They're, there's something behind it. You know what I mean? There's ambitions and ideas that are, you're not bad, that are behind that job. George W. Bush, he was so present and and he's just a guy that's just thrilled to be just with not just thrilled to be the president of the United States he didn't need an entourage he didn't have an entourage he didn't sit with an entourage picked up his own tray put the food on the tray no frills yeah it was beautiful uh Friday Night Lights well Friday Night Lights I love that movie so much Pete Berg directed it it took me nine years to get that movie made correctly. I had other directors that I just changed my, you know, they just weren't right for me. Uh, and, uh, but Pete Berg was ex just so, so honest about how he approached, uh, you know, uh, Odessa, Texas and football and small town living. So Billy Bob Thornton blew me away. I mean, that's, 
his speeches, his style, his power, his charisma was beautiful. Uh, the Pele duck? The Pele duck never turned out to be as good as I wanted it to be or dreamed it could be. And I didn't know that much about soccer, but I didn't even see him as a soccer player. You look at Pele's top 10 shots, they're beyond soccer. They're some extraterrestrial force that's coming into play. Like they're magical. And so I thought we were doing, we're gonna be able to capture that magic. And we did a little bit, but I loved the journey and I got to know Pele and I flew to, uh, you know, the Cannes Film Festival with him, or actually flew, he actually flew my daughter there, <laughs> Sage. How did, how did that happen? She was in New York. Yeah. And I said, can, my daughter's in New York, would you mind? And he said, no, we'll pick her up. <laughs> it was like that thing. That was kind of cool. How about the day sports stood still? I haven't seen it yet, but it was Chris Paul's idea because he had it happen to him the day sport, NBA stopped. Yeah. And he called me that night. I was just talking to him yesterday. He goes, I got this idea. It's the day that sports ended. And he said a few more sentences. I said, I'll get this thing done right away. And, and that minute I, I put Justin Wilkes on the phone who runs our documentaries and it just happened like that. Justin is an amazing artist and storyteller and documentarian. And Chris is a force. When Chris gets behind something, it happens and it happens correctly. Uh, so changing Hollywood business models and all of that, I mean, obviously it seems like every decade or, or so, uh, everything shifts, so this is nothing new. But I wanted to ask you about the uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, these rich production deals that um, you know, some of the be best producers were getting. Um, explain how you saw that start to shift in present day and why? The 80s and the 90s had some similarities. Um, they still maintained the romance of Hollywood where there's a studio boss and the tippy top studio boss is usually a role model kind of person where there's certain things that that studio boss wants. You know, like Warner Brothers always wanted stars because their predecessor, Jack Warner liked stars, Steve Ross liked stars, Bob Daly and Terry Simmel liked stars. So when all the, when the bosses like the stars, the storytellers that are doing tour de force movies that could potentially be a star, you know, Warner's chases it and we chase them. Yep. So we, there's points of intersection. So um, Paramount, you know, was kind of always a high concept company, you know, to me. In, you know, in my, in the 80s and 90s. So they all had personalities and the personalities were sort of, you know, were, were built out of origin stories beginning, you know, in the 30s and 40s and then went further on into time. And when I say romance of Hollywood, romance of Hollywood means that, that stories were inspired, they were inspired by something personal, all stories were like personal, that that studio chairman, whether they're stars or high concepts, or whatever they are, 
they're they're built out of pride something that it's a per, it's a personal statement and i think now it's less personal and just straight money so the motivating factor today with streamers is is uh, is we need to get content into our pipe and as much content as possible quickly and so therefore the motivation the they're sending out this signal that hey if you can do that we're interested and if you can do hits and do that and scalable we're really interested and meaning we will make a gigantic production deal with you and in the day early days you know 80s 90s and even 2000 it was more like do you are you passionate for this <laughs> they'd always they bought passion yeah and now i don't think that is the commodity that's uh, saleable it's not not saleable but it's more it's more data and logic it's more data data that is data categories um categories this is the biggest challenge on your end from going from a first look deal with universal which you had forever to now imagine being an independent standalone yeah. company well the challenge was to get financed and then we did that i i got financed well i made a deal with a, a banking company that i respect called uh, rain how does the satisfaction on your end compare uh from being at and Julio your uh really talented oh, yeah. young producer and I were yeah. talking a little bit about this um about how you know you've gone from you know being a boots on the ground producer to um a little more of 30,000 foot view running standalone company um how does the satisfaction for you from one to the other compare um what I never did the boots on the ground that you're that that I think you're referring to. I only did that twice. No, three times in my whole life and I produced like 80 or 90 movies. Um I don't like to go to sets every day. I don't feel I'm valuable at a set every day. I don't think I'm impactful on a set every day. Now some other people it's sort of to each his own or her own. Um I felt like I have more impact having objectivity and not getting sucked into the drama or psychodrama of this new community called a movie. Um because then pretty quickly you're taken for granted. You're just and I think it's better to be away and then give thoughtful notes based on dailies, based on you have to know the people. Like I absolutely make sure I know the department heads, I have a relationship with the department heads. I'm I have the I I have a I ch- help choose the department heads. Um I make sure that I know the actors, the stars, I make sure I you know, am in service of the stars still. But but the boots on the ground thing I never did and never thought was important to the way I do things. I like to build stories. My curiosity conversations quite frankly are much more valuable to a movie than me going with with my boots on the ground. Imagine impact uh wait uh, yeah imagine impact systems yes uh how did the idea come about it's called impact it's okay. definitely its own standalone company it's a startup that's on it a path to success already um i just saw that streamers 3 years ago i saw that streamers were going to dominate the distribution and the making of movies and television all content they're all going to be they'll all be streaming systems and streaming systems 
will be very, very competitive with one another, even more competitive than the analog studios. And what they're going to want is the is the is the the crown jewel is storytellers. Stars can only work if there's a great story and a and a and a well-written story. So the most important thing is original voices. So we wanted to break down the, sort of the basic sort of the medieval Hollywood system, that caste system, and say we're going to open this boot camp this to the entire world democratize access to hollywood to the entire world and say if you have an original voice apply to impact and many hundreds of thousands maybe we're approaching millions of people apply to impact so impact is this global funnel into this company called impact which then goes which then picks then has a population of 30,000 writers now after about a year and a half that can that can work on projects without having to be at the bottom of the rung of a ladder for at a studio and if you get into the boot camp which will create a boot camp like Y Combinator which is a start which is a startup accelerator in the valley then you get hundreds of people in the boot camp. They they have to apply. They get through the admissions program, and 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 and, and they have eight weeks to actually write and complete a script. That's their contract. They have to f- complete the script, otherwise they can't be in boot camp. We've had tremendous success. Our first one was uh, a, a kid from Zimbabwe named uh, Godfrey who had twelve dollars in his whole life. He had a four-way bidding war um, to buy his animated movie. Netflix got it. He got four hundred thousand dollars, and now millions because he he they're making this movie. Long-term goals with its what? I mean, you've done a lot. With Long-term it already in the goals year and a half. are to create a unified system that creates transparency for the marketplace of our workforce in Hollywood. There's $180 billion spent on the workforce, meaning caterers, electricians, uh, transportation, everything. And they don't, and it's so disaggregated. You know, we have people working in Atlanta right now on my genius series on Aretha Franklin. They don't know where their next jobs are because there's no centralized system that says, oh, there's jobs in Alaska. Oh, wait, there's right to work state in Detroit. Oh, there's this. They don't know. They have to do it by word of mouth. Where are you working next? You know, that's not that's not an effective system. It's not effective for for the streamers. It's not effective for the workforce that needs the jobs. It's not good for their families. So it's it's designed to unify all these jobs and make it transparent and give them the ability to interact on trying to get their next job. That was great. Um, I want to wrap uh, just asking you a couple questions about COVID. What's it been like on your guys end navigating, uh, figuring all this out in terms of- The COVID stuff. Right, and production. Well, and- it's, pre- it's pretty systematized. I mean, you know, Netflix is very, very good at systematizing safety, you know, the, the, the it, and it, at systematizing safety systems 
and red, green, and yellow areas for people to work, people to cross over, not cross over. It's, it's di very, very difficult for everybody that's working on a set, and it's expensive. It's like, you know, it can be 10% more on your budget. Um, but the, but uh, and Disney's very, very good at it. Universal just had success, hard, difficult, but on J Jurassic, Jurassic Park in London, it's just hard to do. It's hard to do, and it's more expensive. How has it impacted the industry? Well, it's crippling to the industry. It didn't stop the industry, but it certainly slowed it down and bottlenecked it. And accelerated but, the transition to streaming. You think? Um, possibly. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I ask you enough questions? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah, good. Thanks for listening to my chat with Brian Grazer. For video content from our time together, including a bike ride and tennis match, plus a tour of the award-winning producer's property, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.